Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program with news, events, and interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists. My name is Brad Swift. Today's interview is with Shalini Jha, UC President's Postdoctoral Fellow and Hilary Sardanius, Graduate Researcher. They're both members of the Environmental Science, Policy, and Management Department of the College of Natural Resources at UC Berkeley. We talk about their research of native bumblebees and bee habitat. During the interview, colony collapse disorder is mentioned but not explained. Colony collapse disorder is a still unsolved mystery that since 2006 has killed approximately 50% of kept European honeybees in North America. The disorder is characterized by the complete disappearance of all the bees in a colony. The kept European honeybees are essential pollinators of many commercial-scale fruit and nut crops throughout the world. The suspected causes of colony collapse disorder include fungus, viruses, pesticides, mites, diet, antibiotics, and weather. The breakthrough mentioned in the interview is not a solution, but possibly a forward step to a solution. This interview is pre-recorded and edited. My guests are Shalini Jha and Hilary Sardinius. They're both at the College of Natural Resources. And why don't you, Shalini, describe the research that you're currently doing together? Sure. So Hilary and I are both in Claire Kremen's lab. And this particular lab group actually has very diverse interests, mostly related to conservation biology and ecological interactions between people and animals. And our work is related to pollinators. So how do you conserve pollinators in agricultural habitats? That's sort of one of our research foci. And we work in some of the farming communities in Northern California, around Yolo, Solano, and Sacramento County, looking at native bees and how agricultural landscapes and regions impact the way bees move and nest and disperse across agricultural landscapes. Is there also an element of working with, or at least understanding, the the beekeeping community in those those very same areas? Is there an overlap and interface that happens? Definitely. So a lot of the farms that we work in manage keep bees as well. The managed European honeybee colonies provide pollination services in addition to native bees. So um, the other portion of our outreach has to do with working with land managers and farmers who are interested in promoting native bee diversity. These are farmers that often have some incentive from USDA or or have some resources that they can use for restoration. So we kind of provide some of the research-based tools to inform restoration practices. That's sort of where we hope our work is moving towards. No one in our lab right now is currently working on honeybees, but we do work with a number of labs at Davis that have, at UC Davis. Mm -hmm. However, previous work that Claire has done with a former student of hers, Sarah Greenleaf, did look at how native bees and honeybees interacted and was able to show that the presence of native bees actually enhanced honeybee pollination of certain crops that where they did their study was in sunflowers and I'm working in sunflowers too and one of the things we do we do collect honeybees in our studies and are able to see how much they're utilizing hedgerows and whether or not they're actually hedgerows linear strips of native plants these restorations that were moving into agricultural landscapes if they're actually providing 
additional resources that are important to honeybees. And by looking at their movement, we can see if the honeybees are going into the hedgerow and then into the crop or different distances to try and understand a bit about their biology as well. Mm-hmm. Some of these landscapes only have five or five or less percent of their natural habitat still maintained. So we've got um, places where restoration might really be necessary in order to bring back native bee communities. And some of our other sites, um, sort of as a comparison, we have more complex landscapes, like uh, in the Cape Bay Valley, where um, some of these farms are just surrounded by natural habitat. And we're also trying to get a sense of what landscape features are important for native bees, for honeybees, and sort of what does that mean in terms of pollination services that the farmers receive in their fields. Are there other pollinators besides bees that you're, you're studying as well? Many of the people in the lab um, have more expertise with bees, but definitely uh, in a lot of these surveys, they're looking at you know butterflies, surfeit flies, wasps, so organisms that aren't primarily pollinators, maybe they serve other ecological functions, like some people are interested in pest predators, and how can these natural habitats not only support pollinators, but also support the organisms which control pests. Hillary, tell me about when you wanted to become a scientist. <laughs> wow, when I wanted to become a scientist. Or when did you, you know, first start to think about it and say, this is interesting, and um, I could see myself going this direction. I guess when what really sealed it for me, I went to the University of California at Santa Cruz, and within the first few weeks, I found this garden called the Alan Chadwick Garden, which is very magical and has been there since the 60s. Um, and I started interning and then working there. And so that's what got me really interested in agriculture and native plant propagation and just in botany in general. So after graduating from college, I decided to work in native plant nurseries and ecological restoration because that seemed to be a place where you could kind of garden with nature. And in doing that, discovered that a lot of plants, when I would go to collect their seeds to propagate them, there didn't seem to be a lot of seeds And when we were doing these restoration projects, we weren't considering the pollinators at all. So after kind of digging more deeply, finding that there was this major disconnect in that, I found I really wanted to go study this for some reason. Um, In a university, just the whole academic setting was fascinating to me. And Shalini, how about for you? Right, so um, my experience also started when I was an undergrad. I was working on a project related to plant populations and understanding how weather and uh, soil attributes, et cetera, affect plants, and then separately also working on wasps. And so uh, I was really interested in in both of these systems and then started thinking about the really important connection between insects or or animals that provide these pollination services um, and the plants that require them in order to reproduce. And I just thought it was a really magical interaction, that, you know, there's this, this, this interconnectedness between plant communities and, and pollinators. It's really fascinating. And in order to have a really holistic understanding of, of plants or pollinators, you really have to understand both. But especially also, like Hillary said, because pollination is so important for our agricultural system, nuts and berries and all you know all the wonderful things that we appreciate on our kitchen table i thought what better place to study pollination than in an agricultural system 
a lot of clean water focus and interest in the agricultural realm is in creating spaces between rivers and farmlands, mm-hmm. which would be natural areas for your pollinators to live in. Right. Is there activity in trying to blend the research? Mm-hmm. That's one thing that many biologists complain about is that there are many of these projects taking place, but we need to work on communicating and making sure that multiple projects could potentially meet multiple needs. And so we do have members in our lab that are working in, or plan on on working in areas that right now are being um, conserved for uh, the burrowing owl, actually, uh, up around UC Davis. So these are conservation areas that people have, have managed in order to promote a bird, but potentially could also provide support for pollinators. So definitely we're trying to look at restoration in many different, of many different uh, ecological systems, so whether that's water systems or you know, mammalian systems or working at conserving birds and thinking about how we can dually also conserve native pollinators or pest predators. Mm-hmm. I would say that the term for this that's often used is multifunctionality, and it seems in a lot of ways in agricultural areas, Europe is very much at the vanguard, kind of preserving their agricultural areas for biodiversity, for cultural heritage of the sites, as well as nutrient cycling, preventing of you know water from entering waterways. And that's one of the things when you talk to farmers about the benefits of a hedgerow, for example, you can say it has the advantage of being a windbreak and preventing... Um, soil from moving across and so there's all of these different benefits that it has but there's also some you know disservices if we're talking about ecosystem services that hedgerows could potentially create and so trying to show the entire spectrum of what they can and cannot do and often a single lab doesn't look at every aspect but when you try and present it to the public or even write it up in a in a journal you want to try and pull from all of those bodies of knowledge on on it to create a holistic picture. So it's it's somewhat difficult and problematic to try to, at your level, bring all of this information together. In the sciences, or if you're talking just strictly about research, um, it is often necessary to kind of focus because there's just so much that, uh, so many factors that play a role in understanding bee communities or understanding uh, water filtration systems or hydrology. I think you're right. You know, we definitely need collaboration across institutes, but I think even within research, people are trying to make connections between labs that work on rangeland um, plant conservation and labs that work on bees or, or pollinator conservation. So there's there's kind of within um, institute cross collaboration that's necessary, and across institutes as well with these some of these NGOs and, and some of these funding agencies. So it does seem like, at least here at Berkeley, there's this group that's arisen called the Diversified Farming Roundtable Round <laughs> and the Diversified Farming Roundtable. And basically, they bridge a lot of these gaps. So they bring a professor like Claire, who's really interested in conservation biology, with somebody who's much more in touch with agroecology, like Miguel Altieri and a lot of their grad students, and create this forum to talk about a lot of different issues. And from that can come review papers where we look at 
some factor, say pesticide use in agroecosystems and how that would affect all of these different organisms, not just the one that we're focused on. And it also creates opportunities to build those research associations. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned applying for grants. And so ongoing, do you have things you're looking to uh, present? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that's the challenging and exciting thing about research is every question that you start to answer leads to more questions. And and so, you know, with my work, so I I focus on native bumblebees, so I'm looking at how these agricultural landscapes, or whether they can actually support native bees or not, and how these bumblebees are moving across agricultural landscapes. When I first began this work, the question was just, well, you know, how many bees does a certain landscape support? And the more you dig into it, you realize that, well, not only is that important, but if you want these populations to be healthy and to persist in the landscape, they have to be able to reproduce and move and colonize new areas, etc. So now understanding their dispersal processes becomes the next big challenge. Okay, we know how many they are. We know we have 50 colonies in a particular landscape, but are they interbreeding? Are they... um, are they moving across the landscape? Are they able to reproduce successfully? So those are some of the next steps. And understanding how the landscape affects these ecological processes or these reproductive processes is very important if we want to conserve these native bees. Did you uh, see recently the the information about the, or the breakthrough, I guess you could call it, in the colony collapse research mm-hmm. that was kind of impressive? Did that surprise you that the those two organizations got together to work on it, the, the U.S. Army and I guess it was the University of Montana? Mm-hmm. Well, the military is actually using honeybees for a lot of different purposes. There's a professor in the geography department, Jake Kosak, who's really looking at using them for looking at unexploded ordinances and how they can put honeybee colonies all over the world and sample their honey to see if there's radioactive material, to see if there's you know nuclear testing going on. So for me, I, I was actually shocked when he had spoken that there wasn't more looking at colony collapse disorder because if they're thinking about you know, food security or threats, I would think, well, this is a major threat to our, you know, national security. And so when I read that they had been working, I was like, oh, I'm so glad. Right. I mean, I think it comes back to this question of if you have multiple agencies uh, working on whether it's persistence of plant populations or ecosystem services or conservation of our natural resources, having multiple agencies working on the same problems but not working together uh, can be uh, a big barrier. And so it would be great if there was more of these cross-collaborations. And, yeah, the military apparently has been interested in a lot of social insects for a number of reasons. So there are entomologists that work very closely with the military, you know, to understand how insects communicate with each other and uh, navigate unknown landscapes. And and so there's a lot of potential uh, for for collaborative work. It's just about stepping out of your comfort zone, maybe, and, you know, talking to people in other agencies. There are more and more grants offered through the Department of Defense and Department of Energy that um, ecologists are becoming really interested in. They're offering them as fellowships to graduate students, and I know a number of people in ESPM have applied. And it's true, like, in some ways you wonder kind of how this research will be used Used. in the knowledge, but at the same time, it's 
creating this large pool of money to study all of these incredibly valuable things. And I think with this increasing interest in food security, with you know all of these global food crises taking place right now, um, there's really just such a great opportunity for collaboration across you know, people who study food systems or study ecological systems and, and uh, government agencies who are really interested in conserving and, and making sure that you know, people have access to good food and you know, are not malnourished, are not uh, starving. So there's a really important overlap that we should be capitalizing listening to Spectrum on KALX, Berkeley. Is there an international element to the research that you read? The, Are there good sources out there that you, that you go to? Or? Yeah, there, I, I think just the nature of... The world right now is so global. So there are people, you know, say in Germany, there's um, Teha Sharkey, like in his lab, looks at a lot of the same systems. And so we kind of try and compare like our systems to their systems. And that's not just in Germany, but in New Zealand and all over. So every little bit that you learn from one place, you want to see if that's happening in your system to be able to draw conclusions and just the nature of journals now and the quality of science. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of these, I mean, there should be more, but there was, for example, the National Center for Ecological Analysis and Synthesis, it's called, it's ENSIES, it was um, this federally funded uh, institution where basically they um, funded people to come from all over the world who were studying similar problems but just didn't have the chance to synthesize it. the information and come up with a general model or general understanding of these processes, so... In many of these systems, you find that the rules are the same, regardless of your, your bioregion. Or maybe the rules are totally subverted, but it's really essential to understand ecological systems or ecological and human interactions at, at this global scale. So we, we definitely need more institutes like ENSIS or like these international synthesis groups. But it's happening a lot, and I think with... Um, especially with you know, connections like the internet and mm-hmm. um, you know, international conferences, etc. You can really bridge across nations and get a better understanding of what's happening on a global scale. In a sense, challenge your assumptions Yeah, yeah. by seeing other people's work. Absolutely, absolutely. So. But also, I think there's some efforts to try and frame your research within some of these larger international contexts. There's been the Millennium Ecosystem mm-hmm. Assessment, which was done by that, the UN? Or? Right, so that was, yeah, it was done by the UN, and I think there were a lot of people at Columbia also that were also working on that. But yeah, it was this international project where they had separate villages, this Millennium Ecosystem villages, where they were monitoring ecosystem services, impacts, ecological, the relationships between ecological systems and humans and in these different villages, and trying to come up with what the general governing principles are for how humans and ecological systems interact and sort of what ecosystem services humans can attain from their ecological, surrounding ecological systems. So things like water filtration and pollination service and um, erosion control, etc. 
in order to come up with a general framework that this is these are the essential components of a sustainable society. And I think just in terms of when you do your research, you want it to touch upon you know these touchstone theories in science to be able to examine those or connect to these bigger global issues that people are constantly examining and considering is important to policymakers, to just people's basic livelihoods on a day-to-day basis. So knowing that even though you have your local system that you're looking at, it has wider implications that you want to be able to tie it into so it doesn't just exist in a bubble. Has your relationship to science changed as you've gone from high school to college mm-hmm. to definitely. postgraduate work? Well, I think, you know, definitely as you spend more time working on science and writing papers, you get a better understanding of how much work it takes to come up with a particular understanding of a system. And you, you start to realize that a lot of times when a certain theory or a certain principle finally gets public understanding or public, public acknowledgement, it's because hundreds of scientists have worked on it and have really put all their efforts together. It really just takes that last 101st study to really have a strong feeling this is the pattern that we see. Um, so I think one of the things that you learn or you gather as a scientist is that it's really a multi-year multi-person, you know, multi-university or multi-research institute effort to understand processes and that it requires a lot of collaboration. And I think the other thing is that you get a better understanding of uncertainty because in science there's always uncertainty. It's, it's never black and white. And so if you're looking for a true-false answer to your question, you're just not going to get it because that's just not how nature works. There's always a gradient to things and there's always exceptions to the rule and I think as a scientist you have to understand that there's always going to be a little bit of uncertainty but you have to be okay with that you have to say that well there's a lot of power and there's a lot of value in saying that we are very sure about something we don't have to be 100% in order to take a certain management action or take a certain conservation or restoration action How about for you Hillary? What's, what's changed in your your view of it? I think a lot of people, like Shalini said, they kind of, you see science as kind of this monolith. It has the scientific process, and it creates these results, and that's what it is. But really, it's this very iterative process that is constantly reevaluating hypotheses. And in a lot of ways, what you choose to focus on is based on what other people have seen. But it's also... I'm noticing a product of the social, political, you know, economic paradigms of whatever time you're in that helps you decide on what to study, what questions to ask, what features to incorporate. So not that it's subjective because there are, you know, these standards that you can kind of incorporate to try and find out, but that I do think it's very much driven by by a lot more processes than we kind of give it credit for and that it's not as Sometimes when I talk to other people who are not scientists, they see it as very divorced from the rest of our social ecosystem, and I think it's very much embedded in it. Absolutely, and I think it comes back to our one of our first discussion topics of, well, where do we get our funding to do this science? 
And so when we're applying to these different agencies, we really have to think about, well, what is it that they're interested in? Are we, are we meeting their target objectives? And those agencies write up those objectives based on the public and based on what you know, the public thinks is important. Thanks to Shalini Jha and Hilary Sardinius for joining us today. A feature of Spectrum is to mention a few of the science and technology events happening locally over the next few weeks. In San Francisco tomorrow, there's a big splashy free Earth Day event being put on by a group named Sustainable Living Roadshow. It is from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. They bill it as a carnival with simultaneous events, a mixture of music, workshops, exhibits, and speakers. The event is being held at the Civic Center, and it is free. The website is earthdaysf.com. The Art, Technology, and Culture Colloquium presents a lecture titled Pure Engineering, Decoupling Technical Innovation from Utility and Consumerism. The speaker is Raffaello D'Andria, Professor of Dynamic Systems and Control at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. This event will take place at Sutarjadai Hall on the UC Berkeley campus in the Banatau Auditorium, April 25, 2011, 7.30 p.m., to 9 p.m. The UC Berkeley Botanical Garden Spring Plant Sale is April 29th and 30th. Friday the 29th is for members only and will run from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. The public sale is April 30th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. The garden is located at 200 Centennial Drive. That is in Strawberry Canyon, east of Memorial Stadium. Stephen Squires, an astronomer at Cornell University, will present the Hitchcock Lectures over two days in May. The first lecture will be held at International House on the UC Berkeley campus in the Chevron Auditorium, May 2nd, 2011, at 2 p.m. Stephen Squires' first lecture there will describe his odyssey with NASA's Mars Exploration Rover mission. The second lecture is the following day, May 3rd, at the same location, International House, and the same time, 2 p.m. The second lecture will discuss the future of solar system exploration. Two news stories of interest. The Messenger spacecraft successfully entered the orbit of the planet Mercury March 17, 2011. This is the first spacecraft to orbit Mercury. It has taken six and a half years for Messenger to reach Mercury. It is now sending back images of Mercury that you can view on numerous websites. The home site for Messenger is messenger.jhuapl.edu. Those initials stand for Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab. The MESSENGER mission is designed to answer six broad scientific questions. Why is Mercury so dense? What is the geologic history of Mercury? What is the nature of Mercury's magnetic field? What is the structure of Mercury's core? What are the unusual materials at Mercury's poles? What volatiles or vapors make up the thin outer layer of the atmosphere? MESSENGER will gather data to answer these questions over the next year. Then the spacecraft will eventually fall out of orbit several years later and crash on Mercury's surface. MESSENGER is part of NASA's Discovery Program. 
the agency's low-cost, scientifically-focused planetary missions. The New York Times blog, The Sixth Floor, on March 31, 2011, speculated as to who designed the radiation symbol that is now ubiquitous. The Times attributed the design to Nels Garden and the Health Chemistry Group at UC Berkeley in 1946. On April 1st, in a reader comment to the blog, P.J. Patterson of Berkeley offered up Cyril Orley, a mechanical engineer at the Lawrence Radiation Lab, as the symbol designer. Orley's version of the symbol, hand-painted on wood, is said to be on display at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab. Does anyone in the radio audience have more information to further clarify the origin and evolution of the radiation symbol? If you do, let us know. Send an email to spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. The music heard during the show is by Lostana David from his album Folk and Acoustic, made available through a Creative Commons License 3.0 attribution. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. We're happy to hear from our listeners. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.calyx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at the same time.